Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for answered prayer. As Tom has just reminded us by reading Psalm 116, that you hear your people when we cry out to you. Uh, when we pray to you in our time of need, that you are there to listen and respond. And thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Uh, you are good to us. And so today we, uh, we want to take this time to worship you, to acknowledge all you have done. Even as the psalmist spoke there about calling on your name and, and receiving salvation. And Father, that is the thing for which we are most grateful today. That we, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That in his death, our sins were paid in full so that we might be forgiven. We might be set free from the bondage to our, to our sin. And the psalmist spoke about that as well. The deliverance, the freedom that we have when we trust in you, we thank you for that. And Father, we thank you not just that you free us uh, when we're saved, that you deliver us from that, but that you continue to deliver us from sin. And Lord, even as we struggle, and maybe we've, maybe we've struggled this week, and there's been areas of failure or something, that we continue to be uh, weak and, 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 uh, and to fall prey to temptation. Father, thank you that you are so good to continue to be forgiving and delivering us from uh, our trials and temptations as we come to you. We thank you for that. We, Lord, we rejoice in all that you've done this week and even today as we're gathered together. Father, we ask that this time uh, that we have set aside, Lord, that this would be a time where, uh, where you are truly worshipped. Again, as the psalmist says, that he would offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. Lord, may our lips speak the praise that is in our hearts as we are... Uh, today, worshiping and offering that praise to you. Lord, receive it uh, as it is. It's imperfect. We admit that. Uh, our hearts are, 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 are never fully uh, devoted to you. And even when we do those things that are good and right, there is always something to be repented of. And yet, Father, we pray that today you would receive the thanksgiving as a, an offering to you and that you would bless it much more uh, than it is in, in us and much more than we are capable of, of, of bringing. And Lord, we just ask that this time would be a, a great time of worship. Father, we know that even as we do that and as we offer you praise, that you are working in us. And so we pray that this would be a time uh, of, of transformation as you change us, as you shape us and mold us and make us what you want us to be. And we just ask that your will be done in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I do have to say one thing, Greg, about those songs. You guys, I, I know you all are familiar with the duck-billed platypus, right? How do you decide what category to put that creature in? It's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I think, it's a, I think it's a worthy discussion at some point. What constitutes a Christmas song? I mean, if 80% of the song is dealing with something other than Christmas, is it still a Christmas song? I don't know. Greg thinks it is. but uh, I, <laughs> Well, then we can argue with whoever, made the, whoever put the hymnal together, right? I'll look. <laughs> when we get to heaven, we can have that argument with, uh, with good old Alfred. Uh, but uh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to invite you this morning to take your Bibles. Um, I'll turn my microphone on here. That might help. And I don't know if this is working, Sam, or not. So we might need to fool with the little remote thing here so I can advance the slides. Uh, but um, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. There we go. Now I want you to imagine with me that you are a soldier or a marine and you are stationed on the front line of a war. And as you're there, uh, you are 
in a position that has been entrenched and you look across the field of battle and you see on the other side of the field, you see the enemy forces. And as you look, you can look down to the left and the right and you can see their line of the enemy's forces as it's arrayed across that field and they go off into the distance in both directions. But as you look over and observe the enemy soldiers and you look a little bit more closely, you realize that their weapons are not pointed across the field in your direction. But instead, their weapons are pointed to the left and the right, down their own lines, aiming at their fellow soldiers. They don't even look across the field in your direction. It's almost as if they're not even thinking about you there at all. And as you watch, you see them begin to fire their, their, their weapons at one another until all their ammunition is used up and the entire battle line is decimated. What would you think to yourself? Well, first of all, you might be relieved. <laughs> but then you'd think, how foolish. How irresponsible for these soldiers to aim down their own lines rather than across the field of the battle. You can't win a battle. You certainly can't win a war if you attack and destroy those on your side. Now, what's the best way to avoid hitting one of your own? Well, I'll tell you, the best way to avoid hitting one of your own is to make sure that you're aiming for the enemy. You aim for the enemy who stands over against you and your fellow soldiers on the battlefield. And as long as your weapons are trained there, you're not going to hit the people who are beside you. Now, this is pretty much the picture that we get from the, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. And especially in verses 27 to 30, the end of that chapter. And here's how he begins in verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. <clears throat> now, the, the letter of Philippians is an interesting letter. In some ways, similar to the letter that we're going through right now in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote Philippians from a place of imprisonment. But it was different than where he was when he wrote 2 Timothy. Writing Philippians, it's, it seems very likely that Paul was in a house, in some form of house arrest, rather than being in a deep, dark, cold, wet dungeon as he was when he wrote 2, uh, 2 Timothy. And Paul expects, pretty clearly here in, in Philippians 1, he expects that any day now he's going to be released from his imprisonment. He had no such illusions uh, when uh, he wrote 2 Timothy, because he expected fully there to die in very short order, as we will see in a few weeks as we finish that series. But his concern for the church at Philippi here is that they would be united in their opposition to false teachers and gospel deniers. Right? They, he wants to make sure that their guns are all aimed across the field of battle at the enemy, rather than turning their weapons on each other and shooting up and down their own line, fighting among themselves. It's one of the advantages, one of the, one of the positive benefits of having a common enemy. When we have a common enemy, it helps to rid us of our tribalism and infighting. And we find that when we turn our guns against the opposing force, quite naturally we end up looking and realizing we're standing shoulder to shoulder, facing the same direction, and in some form of unified uh, work. I, what I, as I was thinking about this this week, one of the illustrations or the, the thing that just kept coming back to my mind um, was 
uh, the, the days and weeks immediately following September 11th, 2001, if you remember what that was like. Because it was, it was for a brief period of time, and I'll say brief because it didn't last very long, it never does, but for a brief period of time, uh, our nation was galvanized to kind of stand unified in anger, outrage, determination to do something about what had happened and what had been done because it was very clear in that moment that, that we had an enemy. And that enemy, it didn't matter whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, that enemy hated all and was opposed to all Americans. And so in that sense, it unified people. If you remember what the spirit of the country was like for a brief period of time there, everybody was in agreement that this is, that, that our country has been under attack. And there needs to be a response. And so there's great willingness initially, and of course, like I said, didn't last, but initially a great willingness to say, hey, we better answer this and we've got to come together. Okay. So you're going to see what happens. When there's a common enemy, we tend to come together. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And uh, the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal. It's a meal shared by those who have something in common. That's what fellowship means. In this case, what we share is Christ. To be more specific, let me just say this, that the Lord's Supper, sometimes we call it communion. In some traditions, they call it the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. Spoken there where Jesus is said to have given thanks for the element. So that's where that name comes from. But it is a symbolic meal for people who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. It symbolizes the body and blood of Christ using bread and a cup. Reminds us that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. That he shed his blood in order to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. What was the penalty? What is the penalty for sin? The Bible tells us the penalty of sin is death. That if we don't receive Christ's death as our substitute, that we will die for our sins. The Bible says that Jesus shed his blood to pay that penalty for us. So that if we believe on him, we will be forgiven in full. Washed clean from our sins, made alive by the Holy Spirit and declared perfectly righteous in God's eyes. Now all of this, all of this is given to anyone who believes on Jesus. And there is no discrimination in it. So it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter your sex. It doesn't matter your family history. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter what your past sins were. It doesn't matter what your present sins are or even your future sins, for that matter. If we confess our sin. He is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from every bit of unrighteousness. And that's why the Lord's Supper is a celebration. Because we come to celebrate this truth. That by believing on Jesus, every bit of our unrighteousness, every bit of the corruption of sin has been removed from us. And that we stand before the Lord. Pure, holy, righteous saints of the Most High God. Jesus died for us. We have been redeemed by His blood. This is why the Lord's Supper is only for Christians. Because if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not been born again, then you don't have this in common with the rest of us which means you don't have anything to share. And so 
as we have said before, but we'll say it again, when we do partake of the Lord's Supper, if you are not born again, if you're not a believer and you've not been saved by Jesus Christ, then you shouldn't partake of this because these elements aren't for you. The Lord's Supper is not for you. It's for those who have believed and been saved. But it's more than that. Because if we have, if we have Christ, if, we've been in, if we are in Christ, we've been saved, the Lord's Supper is also a time for us to express our fellowship. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we must be living in a state of unity and brotherhood with one another. How can we act out this communion, this sharing with each other, if we're not actually sharing with each other? You see why that's a problem? When we come together to eat the Lord's Supper, to share together, but we're not really sharing, then what we're doing when we do this is we're being hypocrites. This is why when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we take the time to study what the Scripture says, not just about Jesus and what he did for us. That's important. That's essential. I'm not going to minimize that. But we also study what the Bible teaches about how we are to relate to each other as Christians. How we are to be in fellowship, sharing with each other. What does that look like? And so, specifically, uh, we have been studying the one another commands to the church. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 contains uh, another one of those passages. We actually find the term one another in verse 3, although I think the New King James doesn't even translate it that way. It just translates it with the word others. But that is the word one another there. Uh, and... These instructions, verses 1 through 4, really make up one sentence. And so we've got to treat that all as a unit. We're not going to try to just take verse 3 out of its context. Verses 1 through 4 are fairly straightforward. So I don't think there's anything really technical here, difficult for us to understand. As we've already noted in the context of chapter 1, Paul is concerned that the believers at Philippi, these are all members of the same church, he wants them to stand together as soldiers on the field of battle, doing battle against the opponents of the gospel, false teachers, those who deny the truth, those who are, who are against Christ and who would seek to destroy the truth. By sharing a common enemy, they're going to be brought into some sort of alignment with each other. But there's more than just an enemy to be fought. There's a danger that is to be avoided, and the danger comes <clears throat> from, the, from uh, persecution and suffering because Paul says that they, are, they are, have been granted to share in suffering just as he has. And so there's a danger there. How are they going to withstand the hardships that come from this enemy who is attacking, who is opposing, who is constantly trying to subvert and destroy the gospel and the church that is formed by the gospel. How are we going to stand? The short answer to that is Christian unity. We have to stand together. Look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore... In other words, in light of this call to stand on the battlefield, to strive and fight for the truth, in light of the fact that suffering is going to come, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for the message of the Word of God, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. We understand that we are in a desperate situation, born as sinners, people who live our lives uh, by our own impulses, doing whatever we want, whatever uh, we desire, but we learn from your word that our impulses and desires are sinful, that they are corrupt, that they are rebellious. And so even when we look at our life and we think we're doing okay, the reality is we have sinned. And doing okay is not okay. But we thank you that even in that sinful state, we have experienced, we, 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 you have you've worked, you have acted, and sent your son to die for our sins, that we might be saved, that we might have life in Christ and experience all of the blessings that come with that. Father, I pray today that as we examine these verses in the book of Philippians, that you would give insight and wisdom, give us understanding of them. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to submit and be molded by this call to Christian unity and brotherhood. And Father, even as we prepare to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would knit us together Help us to see the unity that we have here in Christ. But help us also to embrace the attitude that we must have so that we can fully enjoy and experience and put on display the work that you have done and what the, the Lord's Supper really means today. And I pray that you would be honored in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to begin this morning where all good building begins, and that is the foundation. And so the question is very simple. What is the foundation for Christian unity? And Paul tells us here, in fact, these verses really are just going to draw two basic principles out of these verses for us this morning. Uh, in verses one and two, it's very, very clear here that the foundation for Christian unity is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul moves from his message about their standing strong against the enemy, that's chapter 1, now moving to their relationship with each other. And so he makes a kind of conditional statement, right? Conditional statement is an if-then statement. But this one has, we might even call it a compound conditional statement, because there's a bunch of ifs, okay? If this, and if that, and if that, then do this. But it's not really a question of whether these things are true. Paul assumes that they are. In Christ, there is consolation. That word consolation here means comfort. And it also means persuasion. It's, it's an interesting word. It has quite a range of, of meaning here. But if you've been saved, then you have comfort. You have encouragement. Why? Because you know that your sins have been forgiven. That's a comfort. That's an encouragement. You're on your way to heaven. You have that assurance and confidence. So there is consolation in Christ. But there's also exhortation, persuasion, if you will. Because if you're saved, then you ought to live differently because you're a Christian. So if you're a Christian, all your sins are forgiven. But if you're a Christian, then you will live differently. You will live in light of that fact. There's also comfort in love. Paul talks about here the comfort of love. Why? Because the love of God has been put on display. How did God show his love? I've alluded to it already, but Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while Christ, or I'm sorry, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did God put his love on display? He sent his son, John 3, 16. God loved the world so that, he so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved the world and that motivated him to give his son 
so that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God has been put on display. His love toward you was put on display because he sent Jesus to the cross. When Jesus, when he went to that cross, when he carried that cross, when he allowed himself to be nailed to that cross, it was love of God. It was the love of God that moved him to do that. There's fellowship in the Spirit. Paul talks about here the fellowship of the Spirit. What is that? That's Paul's referring here to our having received the Spirit of Christ to dwell in our hearts when we got saved. The Bible indicates, I think, very clearly, if you read all that the Scriptures teach, not just a couple of isolated places in the book of Acts, but read the epistles as well, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, uh, Romans. I think Paul makes it extremely clear that when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you uh, 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 come to Him and you confess your sins and you ask Him to save you and you believe on Him, that He gives His Spirit to come and live inside of you. It happens that moment when we're saved. It isn't something that happens later on. It's not something that kind of ebbs and flows and comes and goes. The Spirit comes to live inside of you. If you're a Christian today, if you've been born again, then God's Spirit lives in you right now. That's objective reality. And because of that, whatever differences we may have as people, as Christians, we all have the same spirit. That's what that's where there's fellowship with the Spirit. That's why you can travel to another country, walk into a church, and be surrounded by people who have the same spirit. And you can share in fellowship with people you've never met. Because you can because you share in the same spirit. And Paul also talks here about the affection and compassion. We have experienced affection and compassion as God reached down to us in our low estate and he brought us up. What does the psalmist say? He brought, my, he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet on a rock and he established my going. That's exactly what God has done for you if you've been saved. And Paul says, if all of these things are true, and they are, if you're in Christ, if all these things are true and you have them because you're in Christ, it's not a mere possibility. You experience them. But if you have these things, you shouldn't live as though you didn't have them. You shouldn't live as though they didn't exist. If you're in Christ and you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, then there, it would be wrong for you to live as if nothing has changed. In fact, we were talking about this a little bit on Wednesday night. The illustration that if you won the lottery and the money was all deposited at a bank, you know, I don't know, downtown Milwaukee or something, and you had a bill, you know, wow, but we just don't have the money to pay it. I really wish we had the money, but we're, we're, we're out of money. And your wife says to you, well, wait, I thought you said you won the lottery. Where's that money? Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> I'm go down to the bank and get some. The problem is we're not, we're not living as in the reality of what we have in Christ. The problem is oftentimes we don't do that. We forget about the blessings we have in Christ. We forget about all these things. And Paul says, if you have these things... And Christian, you do, then it would be wrong for you not to live this way. How are we supposed to live? Paul says, so the positive side of verse 2, he says, to fulfill his joy. By the way, this, this word fulfill in verse 2 is the only um, imperative, it's the only command or instruction given in these four verses. So everything else in these verses is a way of explaining what it means to fulfill his joy, how to do it, or why we should do it. But this is the command right here, fulfill my joy, Paul says. But what does he mean, fulfill my joy? Well, there's an earlier reference to joy back in chapter 1 and verse 3. So if you look back there, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's talking about, this is his introduction to the letter, to the church, but he's talking about how he prays for them. And he says, when I remember you, in other words, and this isn't like 
It's not like Paul's saying, well, like, you know, once a year, you kind of come to my mind. No, he's saying, I do this all the time. I remember you. I pray for you. And here's what I pray. He says, I thank God for you. Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all, uh, making requests for you all with joy. Paul says, when I pray, every time I pray, I pray for you, and I do it with joy. Why? Why is Paul joyful when he thinks of the Philippians? Why is he joyful when he thinks of this church? Notice what he says. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, I am joyful when I think of you and I pray for you all the time because you and I share in the gospel. We have fellowship. He is, he, what he's saying here is, I, I rejoice that you have trusted in Christ. I rejoice that you've been born again. I rejoice that you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, just like me. I rejoice that you've received the gospel. And that makes me happy. That brings me joy because I know you are born again. And Paul says, that's what I rejoice in. Now, how does, how does that then inform what Paul means about fulfilling his joy? Well, what he's saying to them is, I'm glad that you're a Christian. Now what you need to do is complete it, fulfill it, fill it up, right? In other words, live it out in your life. It's not, I'm glad that you've trusted Christ, but I want to see you continue to live as a Christian, continue to live out in obedience to Christ and his instructions and his commands. Paul says, this is what it means to fulfill my joy. It's really amazing. Paul is in, is in prison or house arrest, whatever, but he's, he's not free. And yet his main concern here isn't that he would be freed. His main concern is that they would grow. He says, this is what I, this is what I want from you. I want you to fulfill my joy. I want you, I want you to take I'm excited. I'm joyful that you're saved. I want you to fulfill that. I want you to continue on and fill it up. I want you to live out all of the implications of what it means to be a Christian. I want that to take over every part of your life. I want that to inform who you are when you're at work. And I want your work to be transformed by the fact that you're a Christian. I want that to take over who you are at home. And I want your relationships at home to be transformed by the fact that you're a Christian. I want that to affect how you are in the neighborhood so that your neighbors see a difference because you're a Christian. I want that to affect how you are in your thoughts and your own imaginations of your heart and your own desires. I want that to be distinctly Christian. I want to see how every part of your life is transformed by this. That's what Paul's saying to them here. Fulfill my joy. Demonstrate spiritual maturity. Let your life grow and be transformed by the truth of the gospel. Paul wants to see them mature. He wants to see them obedient. This will fill up his joy. And notice how he explains what that means. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. So how are they going to demonstrate spiritual maturity? How are they going to demonstrate that God's word and the gospel is... is uh, in, spreading and infusing every part of their life. Well, they're going to do that by like-mindedness. It's interesting because here he rounds out this description in, in verse 2 um, of being like-minded. He, but he explains it and he uses several kind of terms here that kind of all fit together. Having the same love, being of one accord, uh, or uh, to be in harmony with each other. Um, and being of one mind, that is having a shared purpose. But it's interesting because he notice how he starts it. Being like-minded and then the end, of one mind. Very, very similar wording there. In fact, the wording in the, in the Greek, it comes from the same root word. So they're, they're related terms that he kind of bookends this with. And he's emphasizing the importance of this. Being like-minded. Now, sometimes people think of Christians and they think, well... Yeah, like-minded because it's like robots, right? 
Don't think for yourselves. Just listen to the guy up here and he'll tell you what to think. And, and you know, that's kind of how people think of Christians. And, and I don't know. I've, I've never been in a church like this, but I've heard that there are churches that are like that. Where it's just kind of expected that the guy who's up here, he's the, he's the guy, you listen to him and you do what he says and you toe the line where he says to toe the line. And, and everybody kind of thinks and does things exactly the same way. Well, I've never been a part of a church like that. And I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do in a church like that. I don't think I would last very long in a church like that. Um, but because that's not what Paul's talking about here. Right? He's not talking about us being automatons, mindless drones. You see, when you become a Christian, you don't turn your mind off, or at least you shouldn't. What Paul's saying here is the ideal situation is not where everyone thinks alike. The ideal situation is where everyone has a singular focus on the mission of what Christ has called us to do. Our shared purpose, to go back to the analogy used before, we've got our sights trained on the enemy. All of our weapons are pointed the same direction because that's where the enemy is. Another image might be helpful here. Imagine an orchestra. Uh, an orchestra has a bunch of different sections, right? You have your string section, and in the string section, you got your violins, your violas, your cellos, and, and, and other instruments. You got your woodwind section, and that's where you got the flutes, you got clarinets, you got the oboe, you got the bassoon, you got some other instruments there. You have a, a, a brass section, and there you got trumpets, you got French horns, trombones, of course, you got the trombones. You have tuba, etc. And then you got a percussion section. The percussion section, you got timpani, you got snare drums, cymbals, you got a xylophone, and, and again, other instruments. You got all sorts. In fact, you know, in a large orchestra, you could have up to 100 instruments in a large orchestra. Now, if you have that many instruments all together in the same room, you can't have everyone just doing their own thing, right? That doesn't work. It doesn't sound good. It, it just doesn't, you can't. At the same time, um, what if everybody does the exact same thing? What if all of the pieces just play the exact same thing at the exact same time in the exact same way? How exciting is that? Eh, not really. So you don't really want all of them playing in unison all the time. Now, there might be a few moments here or there in a symphony where you might have, you know, some pieces playing in unison. Fine, but... That's, that's not kind of defeats the purpose of having the orchestra there. Okay. You could have a soloist and just take care of it with one person. The point here is, if you're going to be successful in an orchestra, what do you have to have? You have a conductor. And everyone has to follow the conductor. And they play together in harmony. You understand what that means? That means they're not playing the same notes. That means that the violin and the flute and the trumpet are not playing the same note at the same time. That means that sometimes when other parts are playing, you're sitting there quietly resting because the music says it's your turn to rest and you're not supposed to play there. And it means that sometimes one instrument is playing one note and holding a note out for a long period of time and another instrument is playing a whole series of notes. And all sorts of different variation within there. But here's the key. The members of the orchestra have to be of one mind in order to produce beautiful music. They have to. When they do, the effect is breathtaking. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the church. He's talking about members living and acting in harmony. When he says being like-minded, you don't have to be identical. You don't, you don't have to think the same thoughts as everybody else. But we have to be in harmony with each other. We have to follow the same conductor. We have to have the same goal in mind so that we work together. 
And then our variations come together and they produce something beautiful. That's what Paul says. Now the question is, how do we get there? Right? If Christ is the foundation, the fact that you are in Christ means this is how you should live. That's what Paul's saying. If you're in Christ, if you have these things, then fulfill my joy. Live this out. And here's what it looks like. But how do we get there? How do we do it practically? Because it's easier said than done. Well, verses 3 and 4, Paul really gives us here the second principle that I want to mention this morning. And it's this. The attitude of Christian unity is humility. Humility. The attitude of Christian unity. Notice what he says there in verse 3. So important. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In fact, you might notice in your Bible, if you have New King James, it it has those words in italics, let and be done. So this is a very abrupt verse. It doesn't actually have a verb here. It's really nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. It's a very um, demonstrative way of saying this. Paul is trying to be abrupt on purpose. He's trying to kind of be dramatic here. Nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. This is the kind of thinking we have to reject, Paul says. It's, this is the attitude that says, I'm better than everyone else. My opinion matters, and no one else's is really that important. If we go back and use the orchestra illustration, let me just use that to illustrate what this point is. This is when the first chair violinist looks at the second and third chair violinist and says, they don't matter because they're not as good as me. Now, they may not be as good. That's why you have a first chair violin. I mean, they, they've tried out. First chair is the best violinist. That's why you put them there. But that doesn't mean that the others are not important. Without them and without their unique voice, you don't get the full beauty of the, the composition as it was intended. You see, that first chair may be the best violinist, but they need the other chairs as well. Because those parts all work together to create the beauty of the piece as is intended. Now again, solos are fine sometimes. But beautiful music includes all different parts working together in harmony and it produces something that's greater than any one of them by itself. If you've ever been a part of a band or symphony or anything, and I, I, maybe I should ask, how many of you have ever played an instrument before, like a band instrument, a musical instrument? You ever remember, I remember when I was learning to play the trombone and I was part of a band, you know, junior high band, and we weren't any good because it was a junior high band. So, um, but, but I remember, you know, they give you the band music and say, take this home and practice it. And you'd sit there to practice my trombone music. And I'm like, okay, well, I got 12 measures of rest. All right, one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. You know, count the measures. Okay, oh, it's my turn to play. Bump, 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 bump. Okay, now rest. Okay. Bump, bump, bump. Okay, now rest. And, and I'm like, there's nothing here. This music's not, it's not interesting. The, the trombone part by itself was usually not really very interesting. It's hard to practice because you didn't get any sense of the piece. All you got was your part, and your part by itself wasn't a whole lot of anything. And maybe there, was one, maybe there was one section where the trombones might get a little bit of the melody. So you had a little, oh, there's a couple lines here. Well, that's kind of fun. And then it goes back to this, it's not important. But see, when you come to practice and everybody comes together, everybody plays their part together, then all of a sudden it makes sense. Then my piece here fits. And now it actually contributes to this great thing that we're doing, this piece of music that we're putting together. This is what... This is what we're talking about here when we talk about the church. Like-mindedness doesn't mean you can't have your own opinions. Like-mindedness doesn't mean you you have to agree with everyone all the time about everything. Again, that'd be like saying every trumpet in the orchestra has to play the same part all the time. No, we need different voices. There can and will be legitimate differences between us. But I like the way one commentator put it. He said, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of differences of opinion. Okay, if differences of opinion is not the problem that causes disunity, what is it? He says it's self-centeredness. That's what Paul's saying here. It's not about you. It's not about me. 
The minute that you or I make it about ourselves, we destroy the unity that Paul says we need if we're going to stand for the faith of the gospel. We have to constantly be on guard against this selfish attitude, this arrogant mindset. Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Paul's talking here about humility. He says in humility, we need to regard one another as being better than yourself. Now, this is a little bit difficult. Again, does this mean that the first chair saxophonist should look at the second chair saxophonist and say, well, clearly you're better than me, so I'm going to let you, you must be in the first. Well, no. I mean, objectively, the first chair saxophonist is better. That's why he's the first chair and not the second chair. So this doesn't mean lying or pretending with some kind of false humility, like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm supposed to put other people ahead of me. I'm supposed to assume they're better than me. So even though I'm the best person at doing this, I'm going to put them there and let them do it instead. That's not what Paul's saying here. Because the problem is when we, when we think of humility like that, that's really not humility. It's a sense of moral superiority. It, this is kind of how it comes across. We, we're saying something like this. I'm really better than you, but because I'm so humble, I'll let you take a turn. That's really what we're saying when we do that. No, Paul, Paul's not suggesting that we should ignore our gifts, ignore the fact that some people are genuinely better at some things than others. But I like the way Richard Lenski put it in his commentary. He says that, that when, and this is so important, when we become convinced of our own sin, that conviction of our sin does something to us. He says it bows us in the dust before God. And until we've been bowed in the dust, we aren't able to be humble with the kind of attitude that Paul says we ought to have. We become convinced of our great sin and we are bowed down in the dust before Almighty God. And when we're in that position, then, because we see ourselves as sinners, rightly condemned by God, worthy of hell, the natural result is humility. You see, I understand where I stand and it's down in the dust. That's what he says. We have to have a conviction about that. We have to be convinced that where I deserve to be is down in the dust, not elevated to any position. That's where I deserve. Daniel Whittle was a major in the Union Army in the Civil War. He's from Massachusetts. And he was wounded in battle. He lost his right arm. And uh, he was recovering from, I'm sure it was a harrowing procedure, and he was in a hospital, and he was looking for something to read, and all he could find was a New Testament. He wasn't a Christian, but since that was all there was, he read it. And uh, he said that uh, the Scripture spoke to him, but he wasn't ready to accept Christ. And uh, one day, an orderly woke him and said that there was a dying man who had asked for someone to pray with him. And that orderly had seen Whittle reading the Bible, and he said, well, you must be a Christian, so will you come and pray with him? Whittle protested, but eventually the orderly continued to press him. Eventually he agreed to go to the man's bedside. Mind you, he's an unbeliever, having read the scriptures but not believing on Jesus. Whittle went to him, and here's what Whittle said. I'll read his own words. He says, I dropped on my knees and held the boy's hand in mine. In a few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me. I believed right there that he did forgive me. I then prayed earnestly for the boy. He became quiet and pressed my hand as I prayed and pleaded God's promises. When I arose from my knees, he was dead. A look of peace had come over his troubled face, and I cannot but believe that God, who used him to bring me to the Savior, used me to lead him to Christ's precious blood and find pardon. I hope to meet him in heaven. Now, Major Whittle went on to become a gospel evangelist and a hymn writer. And in one of his most famous hymns, 
In the very first verse, he captures this attitude of gospel humility. Here's what he says. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Humility, gospel humility, is driven by our awareness of our sin and our utter unworthiness and God's amazing grace. Paul continues to explain and describe it there in verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When we're looking out for ourselves, for our own interests, that is our comfort, our success, our dreams, our plans, our pet ministries, our pet ideas, our goals, our desires, our preferences, when we're doing that, we don't concern ourselves with the needs and the priorities and the good of others. The solution to this isn't that we stop thinking of ourselves and our obligations and our concerns. I mean, we have responsibilities. We have obligations. We can't ignore those things. But the solution here is that we broaden our outlook to include the concerns of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Look not only for his own interests. He's not saying it's wrong for you to consider your own needs and interests and concerns and desires and ministry and where God has put you and what opportunities. There's nothing wrong with that. But Paul says that can't be the focus. That can't be the only thing. It has to be broader than that. We've got to also consider the needs and the concerns of others. If every one of us would do this, the problems of disunity and of need would disappear pretty quickly. like a well-tuned orchestra. The members are all focused on the conductor with a single mind and single focus. And as they are playing and watching the conductor, they're listening to each other and playing in harmony with one another. I'm reminded of the, the, the early church in Acts. We read about them in Acts uh, chapter 2, 3, and 4. Especially in chapter 4, we hear about how they, the, the people in the church who had uh, wealth, who had excess material possessions, when they saw other people in need, they sold the things they had. Now, they didn't sell it. They didn't, uh, let's put it this way, they didn't give up everything and become poor themselves. They sold excess. You see, they didn't make them, they didn't put themselves in a position where they then became dependent so that someone else had to bail them out. But they used, they realized, I've got more. I've got enough to help. And so they, 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 they liquidated some assets and then they gave that money so that the people in the church, and we're told there in Acts 4, that there was no lack. That everyone had enough because they were able to take care of the needs of one another. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, we got to expand. we got to broaden our look here. We can't just be focused on ourselves and our concerns. We've got to look at others and realize that others have needs. But when we do that, that's when, again, like that well-tuned orchestra, we're able to produce something beautiful. We're able to bring pleasure to the Lord and to those with whom we come into contact. So how are you doing? Now, this is not an opportunity. I'm not inviting you to sit in judgment of the rest of the church this morning. This is not a time for us to look around the room and say, well, I don't think he's doing that well and she's not doing that good and they could do a better job at this. No. No, this is an opportunity for each of us to examine our own hearts. Am I doing things through selfish ambition, right? A desire to get ahead. Am I doing things for 
for vain glory. In other words, in order to get attention, to get recognition. Or am I lowly in mind? Am I considering others ahead of myself? Am I considering their interests? Am I looking out for the concerns and the needs of those people around me? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted in Him to save you from your sins, to give you eternal life? And are you living in obedience to Him? Are you living in fellowship, truly sharing with one another, playing in harmony the part that God has given you to play in the the orchestra? If so, then I invite you to to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper this morning. But if not, let me caution you. Don't take the bread. Don't take the cup in an unworthy manner. To do so makes you guilty of sin. This is an opportunity for us to have a time of self-examination. Will you join me in preparing our hearts to worship the Lord by obeying His command to do this in remembrance of Him. I'm going to give a moment here for for you to quietly in your seat just reflect, pray, examine your heart, and then I'll lead in prayer before we continue with the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious, so merciful to us. I confess that I fail often. It's so easy to go through life each day just thinking about myself, concerned with what I want, concerned with what makes me comfortable, concerned with what I desire, what I think is most important. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to forgive. I know that you are. We thank you that even though we fail and fall short many times, that you are always ready and quick to receive us and restore us. That you want us to come to you and confess our sin. And you want us to get right with you. You want us to reconcile with one another. You want us to to deal with these uh, these areas in our life which are not right. And you want us to deal with these relationships which are not right. And to be faithful, to do what is true and good and right. Being obedient to you. Father, I thank you that, again, you give us this opportunity. Lord, I pray that you would help us to draw together as one, being like-minded, as Paul says, that our hearts will be knit together in love for you, in gratitude for, for Jesus Christ who died for us, with a determination to be, on, uh, the, to be about the mission that you've called us to, and with sincere affection and love for our brothers and sisters, those who are involved and engaged in the same mission we are. And Father, I pray that you would 
once again unite our hearts. Renew us in this fellowship that when we partake of these elements that we would truly honor you with them. And Father, I pray that if there's one person this morning listening to me as I preach, as I, as I uh, plead with, with them about the word of God, who is not a, not a believer, who is not a Christian, Father, I pray that they would see this morning they're lost. They're guilty. That your word says they are condemned. Even now in this moment, they hang by a thread over an eternity in hell. That their next breath could be their last. And they'd be lost. Father, I pray that they would turn to you in repentance and cry out for mercy and forgiveness, believing that you do love them because you sent Jesus to die for them. And Father, I pray they be saved. We ask you that you would glorify yourself in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.